listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hi, everyone. How are you doing out there in this moment? It's April 30th, 2020, and this is the seventh episode of Grief Out Loud to be recorded, produced, and published from my makeshift home studio. In the almost two months since Oregon's governor issued the stay-at-home order, the word grief has started showing up everywhere. People are talking about all the losses they are experiencing. Losses from illness, death, change, uncertainty, and the loss of being able to gather and grieve together when someone does die. In 18 years of working in this field, I've never heard or seen the word grief be used so freely. And speaking of grief... Today's episode is all about a public media initiative called Speaking Grief. Part of that effort is a documentary, also with the title Speaking Grief, that debuts on May 5th. The documentary is part of a bigger effort that includes online learning, a social media campaign, and one day, when we're able to gather again, in-person events. I had the chance to preview this documentary, and listeners, it's really amazing. It's kind, it's conscientious, it's well-researched. And it gives voice to so many grieving people of all ages from across the country. Today's guest, Lindsay Whistle-Fenton, is the producer, writer, and director of Speaking Grief. And we had the chance to talk about the history of the project, all of the different elements that go into it, and how this work has changed how she relates to her own grief, but also the grief of those she cares about. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining me on Grief Out Loud today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a fan of the podcast and and I'm excited to now be a guest. Well, I'm so looking forward to us being able to talk about the Speaking Grief project and kind of all the components and what listeners can be anticipating around that. And can you start, just tell us a little bit, like what was the inspiration for this Speaking Grief project? Sure. So the kind of weird thing is that um, this was actually kind of a long drawn out process. A now retired colleague of mine, Patty Satalia, many years ago had wanted to do a program about grieving the loss of a child. And that just over the years kind of got developed and fits and starts. Um, and I became involved probably four years ago at this point in researching and developing what we could do. And very quickly it became apparent that this was even an, a bigger issue and just looking at how we grieve in general And what a gap there is in terms of where we sort of are as a society and where we need to be in terms of how we are able to show up for people and how uncomfortable we are with this really universal human experience. And so we stuck with it, even though it it took a little while to get it off the ground because we knew it was such an important story to tell. And I think something that's kind of interesting I've learned through this project is that when people ask me about the inspiration. I think people think that it was motivated by some sort of a profound personal experience. Um, And in my case, it wasn't. It was just, I I love working on things like this where I get to connect with people and I, you know, get to do something that I think will help build empathy. And I've definitely grieved losses in my life, but I haven't had one of those 
major life-defining losses yet because I recognize that um, we all go through that. But I think that's, that assumption sort of speaks to why we're doing this is that people think the only reason that people would have to be passionate about grief or grief support is if they're personally affected by it. It's really relieving to hear you talk about that because for myself, you know, I've been at the Dougie Center. It's going to be 18 years this May. And I came into this work not having had the experience of a parent or a sibling. I don't have any siblings. Uh, a parent die or a child die. I hadn't had anybody in my immediate family die and was worried, like, will the folks in the support group be okay with that? Are people going to question what what my motivation is for doing this work? And it, it made me wonder, like, other helping professions, other topics, other contexts, is there the same expectation that you'll have a personal story that will bring you into it. And I imagine it is true across a lot of contexts. But thank you for saying that because I feel less alone now. No, it is kind of, it's a weird thing. And and I was a little tentative about that at first because you lack, you feel like you lack um, like street cred for lack of a better term, you know, and I was worried about people um, being comfortable opening up with me as sort of an outsider. But then I always reframe that as actually, like in our case, with doing a, a media project like this, we're trying to reach people who are who feel like that outsider who haven't had that direct experience yet and still make something that they can relate to um, and not be intimidated by. So I think, you know, it, it can also be helpful to have that perspective. And I've had the amazing opportunity to preview the documentary, the Speaking Grief documentary, which listeners, I can't wait for it to be out for you able to watch it. It's truly just... Yeah, it's heartwarming and it explores so many different aspects of grief. It does it in such a conscientious, respectful way. Like it's an amazing project that you all have put together. But I know it's just a part of the Speaking Grief overall project. Can you talk about what are the different pieces and components of it? Definitely. And uh, and thank you for <laughs> the kind words. That's really exciting to hear. Um, and I just want to say one thing that people have shared who have seen it is that they do find it watchable and that it's not so heavy that they have to walk away from it. So that is, so I just want people to know that going into it, that it's not, um, we didn't try to make something that's, you know, just going to kind of knock you down. <laughs> we wanted it to be something people could stick with and learn from. Um, so we created this multi-platform project with the idea that no matter which channel somebody came to this with uh, or from, that they could learn something and walk away knowing something and understanding something about grief that they didn't before. So we have obviously the documentary, which is an hour long documentary we created for a public television audience that I look at as sort of laying the foundation and being like a grief 101. So we, as you said, it kind of wanted people to first come to this with an actual understanding of what grief is and isn't because there's so many misconceptions in our society about, uh, about the grief experience and just get people a basic understanding of how all the different ways it can affect someone. And we did that through sharing families and their experiences. And then we moved into starting to talk about and think about how we can learn to better support people who are grieving um, as friends, as family members, as coworkers, um, and show up for them in that experience. So I look at the documentary, sort of the foundational work of that. And then we're also creating a website where we have more videos that we're going to be putting out, more families who aren't featured in the in the documentary, but who are every bit as important to the story and the sharing of their experiences. Uh, we'll have some content that we have a very talented instructional designer who's developing both for 
the grieving population and then again that support population. So those were our, our goals were to validate the experience of people who are themselves grieving um, a death-related loss and then also provide resources for the rest of us who are in a position where we can show up for that person, but maybe we don't quite know how to do that. We're also using social media pretty heavily as a content tool and, and rather than just a promotional tool for the documentary. We're trying to distill um, those little lessons that even if someone is just flipping through Instagram, maybe they'll see a slide and they'll learn something that they didn't know about grief. And then we're also, this is this has gotten sidelined a little bit, but uh, in-person events and screening events and discussions were are a big part of what we're trying to do around this. We had a mini grant program that ran earlier this year to help facilitate some events in different parts of the country. And then we're also making the uh, program available to any group, no matter how big or small, that would like to have an event and providing a toolkit around how to do that. Um, and obviously, you know, we're, we're working with the, the, the pandemic situation right now. So that's been a little delayed, but I do believe that that will still happen just at a later date. So it seems like there's a lot of different ways for people to engage with this project, not just the documentary, but those additional videos and then Instagram and other social media ways. And then aspirationally, some in-person gatherings when when we're back able, able to do that again. And, you know, I really appreciate that idea of speaking to folks who are carrying grief, but also speaking to folks who want to show up and be supportive. And I'm curious for you personally, like what have you learned through this process and how has it changed your understanding of grief and what does it mean to show up and be a supportive friend or family member? So, so much. <laughs> um, this was very, it's very humbling. As I alluded to, when we started researching this project, like one of the first things I started coming across was a lot of articles written by grieving people about things that people had said to them or done for them in an effort to offer, you know, air quotes, comfort that were actually hurtful. And in my immediate response was, oh my gosh, I've said so many of these things or I've done these things and, and you feel terrible. Um, and that's not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to make people feel terrible. Um, but to just have that basic awareness that um, the way we have sort of been taught to think about supporting someone who's grieving maybe is a little off target and that Really, it starts, I think, from a place of honesty and just not trying to take something away from someone. So I think the biggest thing I've learned is just how important that validation is. Instead of trying to cheer them up and make them feel better, um, there, there's a line the author Megan Devine says about your, your job isn't to make somebody feel happy, it's to make somebody feel heard. And I really took that to heart, just being there for someone and saying, hey, I'm sorry you're going through this it's terrible that you have to go through this is often enough. And then I, I think when we try to do more than that is maybe sometimes when we get in trouble. So I think I've learned to just hold that space. Um, and it's not easy, like even after doing this, and I'm sure you after doing this, you know, I've had a lot of situations even since working on this where I've, I've had people in my life who've lost someone, I've lost someone and I know better and you still show up to them and you're biting your tongue to not say these, you know, these phrases that we're taught are like the go-to phrases. That's the biggest takeaway is just that like we think it's a kindness to try to take people's pain from them and try to cheer them up. And like, it's just not, it's not realistic and it's not possible. And it actually makes them feel less supported in a way because it, you know, I think as a support people, if you haven't experienced a loss like that yourself, you don't realize that by trying to cheer somebody up, you're sort of like denying them of 
their right to feel something that's totally valid for them to feel. Another one of my favorite Megan aphorisms, uh, Megan Devine, is when she talks about how, you know, trying to cheer someone up doesn't cheer someone up. It just teaches them that they can't talk to you about what's hard. Absolutely. And I think about that all the time. And, you know, as you mentioned, almost two decades in, I still say the wrong stuff all the time. It's and, so, you know, so as, I'm re- <laughs> as I'm reaching out to a friend who's grieving, especially via text, I'm sure they're wondering, like, why are there three dots just hanging there forever? It's because I'm like writing and erasing and writing and erasing and writing and erasing and trying to, yeah. And then recognizing that, you know, we're not going to get it perfect. And, and that saying something is better than saying nothing. And when we say something, there are some things that are maybe going to land a little bit easier or better than other things we might say. Yeah. And I think that that authenticity, too, of I've learned to just say, I don't really know what to say to you right now. I'm just so sorry. And I love you. And I'm here for you. Um, and just putting that out there, the um, the awkwardness. I, you know, I've come up with this phrase I love of like, own your awkward. Like, nobody knows what to say because there's not anything good to say. There really isn't. Um, and so just be honest about that. But like you said, don't say nothing, acknowledge that, you know, someone's going through something. But yeah, to, yeah, another mechanism that I've tried to invoke as she has what she calls the fire drill of love, which is that you get better at this stuff by practicing it in the normal daily life stuff. So I, I sort of given myself the assignment of banning the words at least from my vocabulary, because they're almost always minimizing, even in the the little stuff. Like my my brother had a very stressful move last summer where like his, you know, moving truck wasn't available and then he lost all the helpers he had and it was really frustrating. And I found myself being like, oh, well, at least when this is over, you'll have this great new beautiful house to enjoy. And I was like, you know, slapped my own wrist and said, no, bad, <laughs> stop saying that. But, you know, I'm, I'm at least more conscious. And it's, some of it's having self-compassion because nobody's perfect at this, but trying to call into consciousness those um, day-to-day instances where you think you're helping, but you're really, like you said, just shutting somebody down instead of letting them just have their experience and sitting with them as they have it. In this process, in the last couple of months, you've actually moved into a space of being on the receiving end of grief support with your grandmother's death. And I you know I'd love to hear kind of like how this experience has shaped or influenced the grief that you're going through, but also like, can you tell us a little bit about your grandmother? Yeah, she, um, she was 97. She died in February. She was really special. She was kind of a, the cool grandma. She was very independent. Even up into her eighties, she would go to curves and work out and she remember <laughs> her flexing and saying, you know, feel my muscle. Um, she loved to travel. She, she actually gave me that gift of, um, she, paid for my first ticket overseas. Um, she told me if I had an opportunity to go, she would like to help facilitate that. She had taken all my other cousins and, and her other grandkids on trips at various points um, and wasn't quite able still to travel at that level herself. When I was in a position to go to Ireland was my first trip abroad. But so she, I always am grateful that she gave me that love of travel and that opportunity. And she loved public television. She thought it was pretty cool that I worked for PBS and she that's all pretty much all she would watch and she was very savvy and into things, um, you know, in her later years, she, she slowed down a bit. Um, so she wasn't able to get out as much, but she loved movies and plays and, and she read, you know, she just was very up on things um, and, and fun to talk to. It seems like she would have been front row center for the Speaking Grief documentary when it debuts. Yeah, I'd shared one 
photo on Instagram after she died that um, she it was her in the background of like a school concert when I was like 10 or something because she was at everything. She came to everything. She was very involved. And do you have a sense of how this work and being part of this project is shaping or influencing how you're going through your grief or how you're observing yourself going through your grief? Yeah, it's it's done a couple of things. It's made me, I've, I've just sort of like observed my own grief a little bit. And, and what's interesting is that my other grandmother had died about four years ago this spring. And that was a very different experience because I was with her when she died. And I was, um, you know, it was very raw and intense and my whole family was there. Um, and so I had this sort of like very acute grieving period right around that. But then I felt like I was able to sort of grieve and move on. And in this instance, um, I, you know, I, I don't live where my family lives anymore. I live out of town. So I would, you know, it's like I found out on a phone call that she died. So I think I'm still in a healthy amount of denial right now where I haven't actually started to process it yet. And that's something from this project, an expert um, I had interviewed, he actually said that at some stages, avoidance can be can be a healthy, you know, coping mechanism. So I've sort of given myself permission to like, I'm consciously avoiding it at the moment. Um, and I, you know, every now and then I'll sort of wade into it, but I don't think I have fully gone there yet. That's one of the messages we're, we're trying to get out is like, basically, as long as you're not hurting yourself or somebody else, like, however you have to do it, um, that's okay. The other way it's influenced me is I've also realized, even though we're putting out this messaging and we're trying to dispel some of these misconceptions about grief is like, they're really deeply entrenched. You know, I still had this feeling of not feeling like my grief was valid because I thought, well, she was 97. She was your grandmother. Like you knew you were going to lose her at some point. Like you should basically like you shouldn't feel the way you feel about this. It's not as valid when you lose a grandparent as it is in other types of loss. And like those, this, we have these weird cultural assumptions about things and also it gave me language for some of the experiences I was having within five seconds of me posting about her passing I started getting what I've now learned is grief shaming where people meaning well would kind of throw out the well your grandmother wouldn't want you to be so sad Mm. or she you know at least you had a good life with her you know some people don't even have grandparents you should feel that at least you know at least you had her it sort of punctuated a lot of the things I had learned in a very personal way. How quickly we can jump in to qualify our grief or other people might jump in to qualify our grief um, to sort of categorize it as not so bad or really bad or how, you know, however that hierarchy kind of gets set up. And I, I love that, you know, getting permission from someone to say like conscious avoidance is part of this process and there can be so much pressure when someone dies to feel like I got to get all the grief out right at the beginning, you know, and sort of this idea of like, if I could just get it all out right now, then I won't feel it later. But knowing that grief's going to be this lifelong process and, you know, we don't have to rush it. <laughs> There's plenty of time. And that each grief is, is different. Like I said, with my other grandmother, who I was also close with, it kind of all came out within a few weeks and I felt like I really embraced it and felt it. And that was fine in that instance. And in this instance, I went to work the next day because I didn't want to think about it. <laughs> I, you know, tried to just show up. But that's another actually way is like our, our workplace has become an interesting place where people are very invested in this. And I've already seen changes and in how people support each other 
But because we're sort of working internally on creating this more grief aware space, I was able to say to a coworker that day, um, she had scheduled me in a meeting and I just sent her an email that was like, hey, my grandma died. I'm in the office, but I'm kind of not fully here. So if I don't contribute that much or if, you know, if I'm kind of in a funk, that's why just heads up, you know, and I felt comfortable being able to be that open that I was going through a rough time. And, you know, basically I'm just here to get through the day and to not because, you know, the alternative is sitting on my couch and crying all day. So, um, which is fine too, but um, <laughs> it's not the, not the method I chose. So I think it made me a little more comfortable of advocating for myself. It's, it's, I know what's coming now, you know, I know that you can't avoid it forever and that I'll have little snippets here and there, but you know, for now I'm good with the avoidance. As the producer of this project, what are you hoping people after they watch this documentary or as they're watching it, like, what are you hoping they're going to leave that experience with? I think first and foremost, just again, that validation that we made grief a problem or an illness or or something like this process that we have to just work through and finish. Um, So I think first I want people to understand that that's not how it works, um, that it's a hundred percent normal and healthy. It would be weird if we didn't grieve for people or things that we lost. Um, That's, you know, it makes us human. So number one is just that it's a normal, healthy experience. It's, it's not a, I think we tend to like to categorize these, you know, feelings as, as good or bad. And I'm sure I don't have to tell you about that is, you know, in, in the work that you do. But just because an emotion is difficult doesn't mean that it's bad. So I think from a grief perspective, just really understanding and giving yourself permission that what you're feeling is whatever you're feeling in that moment is your right to feel that. Um, also understanding this was something we tried to really explore in the film that we think grief is just an emotional experience and it's not it, you know, if you are having physical symptoms, if you're feeling tired or you can't eat or you're eating everything, or if you're getting, you know, inflammatory joint pain, that's all part of it. And that's, that's normal. And that I think is support people to take that into account too, that your person is going through so many different things. Um, And I think that should inform how we show up for each other and that they might be experiencing other losses as a result of that loss that they might need supported, you know, if it's financial or logistical, that there's so much, so much stuff that comes with the grief experience. Um, So just being aware of that. And then on the support side, it, it really comes down to, I think, learning how to be authentic and be humble and show up, you know, and getting, getting over that idea of, you know, like, I think we live in this prescriptive society where we love these like top 10 lists or, you know, these are the tips that you can follow and you'll nail it. You'll, you'll be the best grief supporter in the world. And like nothing like that exists because we can give guidelines and that's what we try to do is we try to give suggestions. But I think the main suggestion is just you have to take your cues from your person and you have to be willing to make yourself vulnerable and be awkward and be in the moment with whoever you're trying to support. Again, that if you don't know what you're doing, it's okay to say that. But just my, my plea is like, don't, don't go away because you feel awkward. Show up, say that you feel awkward, let them know that you're trying. Also, if you get it wrong, which you will, <laughs> it's, it's almost inevitable that you're going to say something or do something wrong. And just be humble and compassionate in that. Be compassionate with yourself. Be open to the fact that you might have good intentions and they might not land well. And, you know, take, take a step back, but don't completely vanish. And it goes back to that authentic conversation. You can come back to a mistake 
and just say, hey, <laughs> I really screwed that up. I'm sorry. I'm trying here. I don't know what to say, but I know that wasn't it. But, you know, I, I'm still here for you. I think that's that was one of the most heartbreaking things is over and over and over hearing how many people, not only did they lose the person who died, but all these people that they thought were going to be there to hold them up or surround them with love in that time just completely vanished. And as someone who's been on that side of things too, I understand the impulse to be so scared or overwhelmed that you don't say anything. I've been in situations like that where I have literally said nothing because my brain short-circuited looking for the right words and I regret that but that's how we learn that's how we grow but just just keep showing up speaking of the folks who were part of the project what feedback have you received from them of what this was what this was like for them to tell their story in this way that has been, you know, this is this is one of the most rewarding things I've ever worked on. I would say this is the reason I went into public media and documentary filmmaking. The the families have just been completely wonderful, and and you you've probably experienced this on your podcast. Is you get like you get weirdly bonded with people when you sit down and do an interview on something that's this this raw. Um, so I think most it's it's by and large been very cathartic for people to share their experiences. I know that people have shared with me, it's been, it's obviously very difficult and incredibly courageous to sit down and talk about something this personal. And I, you know, I had one um, woman who'd lost her son say, you know, I almost canceled on you right before you came, but you know, I feel like he gave me this, this sign and he's with me during this interview. So it's, it's hard to feel like you're putting people through that. But even in the research phase of this, when I would have preliminary conversations with people and I, and I want to acknowledge too, I talked to a lot of people who didn't ultimately end up maybe being featured in the project, but as part of the research, you know, like hour long conversations with people who helped inform the directions Mm -hmm. and the focus of the film. So I really want to acknowledge each and every person who took the time to share their story with me in one way or another. But those phone calls sort of set the stage for this type of feedback because usually there were tears, um, you know, and it was very intense and I, and people were very willing to be very open with me. I would feel guilty and I would say, I'm so sorry for (laughs) dredging all this up. And they would come back with gratitude and just say, no, you don't understand. I never get to talk about this ever. And that was really a powerful confirmation of how important it is to start speaking grief and start getting this out there is realizing just how little people are actually given that space, just without judgment, without expectation to, to talk about their pain. Yeah. And that because the pain surfaces doesn't mean it was a bad or a wrong conversation that oftentimes it's a pretty unique and rare opportunity for somebody to talk about their person and talk about the ways in which that death has affected them. Absolutely. And yeah, I think across the board from both the families and also a lot of the grief organizations that we worked with, people are just really happy that we're going to try to put this out into the kind of mainstream consciousness and start talking about this because it is so important. And it is something that it's like, I think we ignore it until we don't have a choice. So we're just trying to get people to start paying attention to it before we get to that crisis place, because it is inevitable. Um, And it's, it is scary and it's awkward um, and it shows up in weird ways, but there's no way you can go through life without either grieving or being around somebody who's grieving. So it's, I think it's really an imperative for us to try to try to open the space. So Lindsay, as we 
get to the end of our conversation, one of the things I've been wondering about after getting to preview Speaking Grief, the documentary, was just the wide range of of people and their experiences. I mean, there's a, there's racial diversity, there's cultural diversity, there's economic diversity, there's gender and sexuality, just a, a wide range of experiences. So just, could you speak a little bit about like the process of how you reached out to people and, and just the background of that? Yeah, we were very intentional from the get-go that we wanted this to feature a very diverse range of families, both as you talked about in terms of their identity, even their location, and also their grief experience, who they lost, how they lost their person, how long it's been since they lost their person to really show sort of this full journey of grief and kind of two things at the same time and that explore that grief is universal and it doesn't care where you live or where you're, what your status is, that we're all affected by grief, but also that it is incredibly unique. So, you know, two people who experience the same type of loss aren't going to have the same experience of grief because we're all shaped by who we are and these other identities that we carry. And in terms of actually finding people, we worked with a lot of great organizations like the Doggy Center that we just relied on sort of their kindness and their trust and building those relationships to explain what we were doing, ask for referrals, um, and then facilitating conversations that again, either were used as part of the preliminary research or that eventually led to people being featured in the film. And you mentioned earlier uh, about COVID-19, the pandemic, and how it's really affecting the rollout process that you all had planned out. So given that, given that some of the the in-person uh, conversations and and viewings are, are kind of on hold, what are, for listeners, like how can they keep an eye out on being able to like watch things and be part of it. Yeah. So it definitely threw a curveball. Um, it hasn't affected the broadcast portion of our rollout. So we're still, we're premiering this locally, um, in central Pennsylvania on May 5th and that's the first air date and then other stations are following. So people can check out our website. There's a, there'll be a list of air dates that keeps getting updated as new air dates are added. So that piece of it is still, continuing on as planned. We did have a number of events and screenings that we were hosting or that other organizations were hosting that have had to be postponed that uh, that have not been canceled that will just have to happen later. And I think like everybody else in the country, we're just sort of waiting to find out what later is. But so that they're not going anywhere. They're just, um, it might just be a little while. We're also exploring ways that we can create, you know, virtual watch parties or virtual experiences or ramp up engagement through social media and give people a chance to sort of participate in a discussion on those forums. So we're still sort of figuring out how to adapt that, but there's still information on our site about uh, hosting an event or requesting a, a copy of the film for an event and how to do that. So we're still committed to facilitating this getting out there. We're just kind of <laughs> going with the flow on, on how that might unfold. So listeners, yeah, keep an eye out for your local PBS station's uh, calendar after May 5th for the Speaking Grief documentary. And then I'll link to the website in the show notes so you can go there. And then also on Instagram and other social media to kind of just keep track of what's coming out around the Speaking Grief documentary. Lindsay, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk with me about, about Speaking Grief and this amazing project. Oh, thank you so much, Jana, for having me on the podcast. And also thanks to the Dougie Center for the support and help they've given throughout this project. 
Well, listeners out there, we're grateful to you as well. Thank you for tuning in and being part of our audience. I've mentioned in our last couple episodes, we have a brand new email, griefoutloud at dougie.org. So send me your emails. I'd love to hear from you. If you want to listen to any of our past episodes, they're on our website, dougy.org or anywhere you are currently listening to podcasts. So thanks for listening and we hope you'll join us again next time.